0: to your game mailbag. my name is Tom Savage hope you're having a good week um, I've been sick this week um, it's a weird thing it, it kind of happens after I do any sort of public thing or radio thing or whatever else I end up sick a day or two later I don't know what it is maybe I'm allergic to it maybe I should stop but uh, I'm getting on to your um questions now on the TRK mailbag. If you have any more of them that you'd like, uh, send them into info at 3redkings.com. TRK mailbag in the subject line. I will get to them in a uh, mailbag of some description, be it this week or next week. Um, Yeah, it's been a a wild couple of weeks. Ridiculously busy. I know it's ridiculously busy anyway because, you know, there's a baby there. so it's just one of those things that you kind of have to um i think you kind of have to just go through which we're doing and um yeah so let's get to the first question Uh, this is from morgan o'connell uh hi tom congrats to you and your partner on your new arrival thank you very much i hope she brings you both lots of joy she is ireland's success at under 20 level over the past few years has brought to light the talent coming through predominantly from leinster where will they all continue to play rugby leinster can't hold on to all of them Munster have produced a lot of back row players over the last few years also. We can't hold on to all of them either. Why do you think Munster produced so many back row players? Is it because it's technically an easier position? Or is it, when a coach sees a young lad with power, does he think, where can this lad do the most damage? I know, number eight. And finally, why can't we produce centres? Apart from Scannell, I think a lot of, uh, I can't think of a homegrown centre of notes since Barry Murphy, whom I know you would beat in a race across the playground. I would, I would beat Barry. And I was talking to him uh, up in the stands at, the match on Saturday and I wish that I'd remembered how quick I was. I could have said it to him that we'll challenge him to a race out on the pitch but it didn't happen. Um, but yeah, thanks for the question, Morgan and thank you for uh, the nice words at the start. Um, I'll get to the the last one first and then go to the first part of your question because they're linked, right? When well, you're saying Monster produced a lot of back row players over the last few years um, like we have like, and it's it's because, it's not that it's an easier position to, uh, to to have players for. It's just, if you look at the average person who would be playing rugby, they will be between around six foot, you know, six foot and six foot three. That there's a lot of guys who are in that size frame, who are big lads, who, you know, would fit perfectly for what you want in the back row for the most part. And in low player population environments where like you might have a club where there's you know not a massive amount of competition for places to play in right or in a school for example it's easier for you to end up in your natural position because there's not a whole load of other guys there who might fit the same physical profile like for example if dan sheehan was in munster it's quite likely that he would have come up as a back row and maybe not even been the same level of player that he is now as a hooker because there wouldn't have been as much competition there to move him into the front row. That's something, and, and this is something that we've seen with uh, with CJ Stander, for example. Part of the reason why he moved to, to Munster in the first place was Heineken Mayer wanted him to become a hooker or wanted him to look at becoming a hooker. Um, CJ didn't want to play in the front row, so there was an, an immediate problem there in that uh, Heine Khmer thought he was too small for the back row as around six foot, six foot one. So um, that led to CJ coming up here, having a, a legendary career for both Ireland and Munster. But that sort of discussion happens a fair bit when it comes to players um, in, I think, I'd say all positions, but mainly the back row, where you're generally going to have a lot of back row players. And I've told this anecdote before, but when I was coaching over in Italy, there was a young guy showed up at the club one day. We we were having an open day just for for young players to come in and, you know, experience and try out rugby. And he was like around 14, 15, around that age, there or thereabouts. It's kind of getting fuzzy now because it's so long ago. And he was a massive, massive young fella. He was at that age, he was like around 6'3, 6'4. He was big, like he was, like his family were from like one of the Balkan countries, like his father was a massive man as well. And like, he was just an unbelievable athlete. Like you give him the ball, he'll run through guys. Guys could not stop him. They couldn't tackle him. Now he was, like I said, he was around six foot three, six, four at that age, right? So what did we think? The first thing we did was he should be in the back row, put him into the back row or like even into the second row right? We had another tall guy in the second row, but, and we had one guy who was like a really good kind of pusher because we were like around 15, 16, they were doing live scrummaging at that stage. Um, But we thought, look, put him into the back row. That's a guy who can jump in the line out. That's a guy who could be really physical for us. Um, And he just, he didn't like it because look again, like we, we had tried him on the wing. Because again, when you're trying to throwing the ball and running around with fellas first, they don't really know really what to do for the most part. But you can tell a guy, look, stand there. And when you see us moving and the ball moving, you move and keep yourself at around a 45 degree angle to the last guy's shoulder. Right? And when he passes you the ball, run straight. Run straight. He could do that and he would knock guys out of the way he was fast he was he was huge and like this guy could have scaled up God only knows like he was a huge young fella um, but we wanted to put him into the forward so we were giving him the big sell about like oh look it's the that's where all the big players play and like that's where the big physical guys we only put guys there who were super strong Do you know the big old fucking you know the big sell in the story but like he just didn't like it he didn't get the jumping in the line out he didn't get the lifting so then we started okay look we'll, we'll take him out of that so we'll put you into a like we we'll maybe have you as a receiver um but that didn't work either because like he didn't really get mauling like he didn't get the angles he didn't get the prep and we'd be like we, we we tried and look this wasn't elite level training by any means but like eventually he stopped coming because it just wasn't fun and like there's conversations like that around the whole time. And we've actually got a good example of it relatively recently where Rory O'Shaughnessy, for example, um, for Prez, he was the uh, the Munster Senior Cup winning number eight for them this year. Last year he was playing at 12, which goes to your second question. Um, why can't we produce centers? Like we, we we have brought through a few centers. Like Dan Goggin has got a you know a few pro pro appearances, a, a good few pro appearances to be fair. Um, Rory Scannell, again, when he broke through, that was in 2015, 2016, when he first, when he broke through and had an entire season where he just started almost every game. Munster were riddled with injuries at that point. But um, that type of, 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 of player, it's tough to bring through. Midfielders are tough to bring through anyway. They're easier in high population centers. Now, Ulster would be an inverse of that. They haven't produced an awful lot of homegrown um, centers or uh, back rows as of late. You've got um, McCann, who's a good player, but hasn't really had a, a breakthrough season for Ulster as of yet. You've got guys like Timoney, who came up the road from, from Leinster. Um, you have a couple of other guys as well, like Greg Jones. And you've had, um, you know, Marcus Rain, Matty Ray, who were there as well. They haven't really made a massive splash internationally, I would say. Um, but they have a lot of centers. And like you look at Stuart McCluskey... At like six five at you know, I think we're six, six five. Like he probably would have been, if he'd been anywhere else in Ireland, probably would have ended up in the in the the back row. And like he essentially still plays like one. <laughs> but um it, it comes down I think to player population, it comes down to I suppose the culture of rugby in that area as well. Like, for for Munster, I suppose, there's always been a big onus on forward play. And this is like when you go to um, down through clubs as well. Like, it's not just Munster you know, since, you know, the late 90s, you know, not just that, but like you go to Young Munster, you go to Shannon, you go to Gary Owen, you go to like to all those different clubs, like not just in Limerick, all over the place. There's a big, big onus on forward rugby, on, on forward, you know, on, on an excellent forward play. So guys who will help that to succeed will be more likely to be put there. And like, so if you've got a guy who's 6'3", 6'4", big physical guy, like, They'll come to the same conclusion that I did, which is this guy should be in the forwards because, you know, you see a guy with a massive frame like that, you're thinking, fuck we could do with him there. But that might not suit the player and they may be better off as a midfielder or a, or a winger. Like, but that's something where I think in Munster, that's my own theory anyway, that the reason why it's been so difficult for us to bring those guys through. And this might be different when we, if we start to go after, um, guys with a kind of a strong GAA background that might be better suited to the midfield rather than the forwards. I think that could be something where you might see the balance begin to change there. But I I think that, you know, in in the long term, like you just have to look to go and try and identify them. Like there's some good midfielders coming through for Munster at the moment uh, at underage level, like um, Gene O'Leary Kareem. You have his, cousin James O'Leary. Um, you have a couple of guys who kind of fit that that bracket of being really talented midfielders. And I think that if, and, and again, there's Fionn Gibbons in the academy as well. I know he, he's come down from Leinster, but like you look at the lads who are there, to be an elite midfielder today is just incredibly difficult because there's just it's, so much is required. Like, like you have to be able to hit breakdowns like a back row on both sides of the ball you have to be able to pass you have to be able to like beat guys with your pace you have to win collisions um like defensively there's a lot of there's a lot of thought process that goes in there as well and now you have to kick so like you the, the most complete players are elite midfielders because they can kind of do everything and to a, to a certain degree there's not a big degree of difference between what a back row does and what a midfielder does when you take away the set piece they lost and look like they're doing the same thing, but that's where I think Munster are bringing guys through. There's some, like there is some talent coming through. And I think that, that will, you just have to keep building and keeping those guys there. And I think trends in the game changing as well are, will help because like you look at the days of the, you know, 110 kg crash ball midfielder. They kind of seem to be not gone, but like on the way out where you can't just be that type of guy anymore. So, like for a lot of teams, you see them going for smaller midfielders. Like, there's still a lot of guys involved in pro rugby who want a big center. They want them to be hitters. They want to be able to have a relief hit off your ten where you can truck the ball and we'll get a ruck here and we'll build around our next phases then off, off off, that or use them off the set piece as a compression tool or whatever else. But I think that with the way the game is going, there's so much required of the modern midfielder defensively, but even with the kicking game, that that type of player, like the, the margins for them are becoming a little bit thinner because you always have to give something up when you've got a big hitter of a, of a midfielder. Like, look at Manu Tuolagi at the moment. Like, Go back three or four years ago, and he was unplayable, like he beat Ireland every time. The game is kind of changing, and I think that there'll always be space for somebody who can win collisions, but you can't just win collisions anymore. You've got to have a wider, more balanced game. You can see when Damien Delende was trying to change up his game here as well, where he had the collision down on both sides of the ball, he had the breakdown down. but the other side of the game, the the passing, the the kicking side of the game was something that he was trying to add because you need to be that level of complete player now. Like Locano Am, for example, as a midfielder, like in years gone by, like he probably would have been shifted out onto the wing and he has played a lot on the wing. But the, like, the detail and the complete skill set that's required of midfielders now, that's a massive, like that's a massive... Um, uh, like change in what has come before and we're seeing it where a lot of guys in the outside back line they're all starting to blend together now with the skill sets of what they're expected to do like you could tell me that there's like we'll say uh, an inside winger as you know the way James Lowell plays you can't tell me there's a massive difference between how James Lowell plays and how a typical inside center would play if you just add a kicking game to that inside center like they play very similar and it's just that the positions they, hap- they happen to inhabit are different a lot of the time but watch Munster the way Munster used uh, R12 at the moment they'll often be out in the wing so it, it's positionless to a certain extent in the backs these days there's a lot of I, I suppose utility back gives people an idea of being a jack of all trades but like you're going to see guys now who will have there will be a, there's always going to be a space for outside wingers the guys who are five five 5'11", but they're really quick, really elusive. Calvin Nash, essentially. There'll be guys, and, and Keith Earls, and Andrew Conway, guys who are slightly shorter, but who are really quick, really elusive, really agile, great finishers. But a lot of the other players, I think you're going to start seeing now, are going to be between around 6'1", 6'3", 6'4". They're all going to have a very blended skill set. That's where, that's where the game is going, I feel. But to go back to what your original point was, Morgan, um, success under, under 20 level and bringing through a whole load of players. There's been a lot of talk about this and one of the questions that's here also, right, is, um, and this is from EC23 in the Secret Club, these are connected questions. Um, what are your opinions on the concept, uh, let alone the feasibility of a fifth, probably UK based Irish team in the URC? Because there's definitely an issue, particularly at Leinster, of so many talented players not playing much rugby, especially in category A matches. An argument against it has been Connacht aren't competitive at the highest level, so more players should be encouraged to go there but playing for your own province and your own identity is so crucial that I don't think it'll be the best thing for Connacht. These are connected questions, right? Um, Ireland is producing a lot of pro-ready players at the moment. What? gets me and what, what would give me pause about creating a fifth province or you know you get buying a club in England or whatever else not London Irish by the way because like you could buy him for a pound and then you've got 30 something million pounds worth of debt to go with it the IRFU will not do that the, the IRFU do a lot of things they will not do that Um, like it, it comes with inherent risk right and I think at the moment for the IRFU what their thoughts on it is is that it's working at the moment Ireland are number one in the world. Um, there's been player backups at Leinster for years. My worry is, and this is for Leinster and for Ireland going forward, is that there becomes a sort of a stagnation. And this happened at Munster as well. I'm going back to look at like, I know they're, not everything is linked, but I go back and I look at Munster from the, we will say from around 2005 on, Munster were very successful. 2006 won the Hiding Cup 2008 won a Hiking Cup as well but in the intervening years like in and around them Munster started to look more and more tired as the seasons went on look guys were getting older they had a lot of miles in the clock at that stage as well but they because of their importance to Ireland they were still very important to their province they, again I said it before IRFU are a top-down organisation IRFU run everything they own everything and like everything funnels up to the IRFU. So the most important team in the IRFU is the Irish Men's National Team. They pay the bills. They draw the money. That money pays for everything. So that's what, like, there's a lot of focus one way or the other, about should there be as much focus on it? They are the money-making team in this country. Other provinces can make bits of money here and there or whatever else, but like they're all still subsidized by the IRFU from the money that's made by the Irish national team. So a successful Irish national team means sponsorships, means merchandising. It means uh, people buying a hundred euro tickets to go to the Aviva stadium. It means uh, you get like good sponsorships as well. Like all that is hugely important. So from the, from the I refuse perspective at the moment, things are working very, very well. But as you've said there, there's lots of young players coming up. And Morgan's question initially was, there's lots of young players who are coming up. How do we utilize them all? Like, I think there is a problem at Leinster. And I will say problem here in, in you know, you'll see my air quotes. That like, they do have a lot of players who are coming up these players end up playing around 40 or 50 URC games for Leinster and never really break into their European Cup team. I'm talking about guys like Will O'Connor. I'm talking about Scott Penny. I'm talking about guys like, um, we'll say, Ed Byrne. We're talking about, I know he's played a fair bit of European rugby too, but like as in that wasn't, uh, at the moment he'll need an injury to get in there, if you know what I mean. Um, like, all these guys are valuable to Leinster in that they w- can slot in if needed, but everybody knows what Leinster's starting pack is. Everybody knows what their halfbacks are. Everybody knows who their outside backs are. Like there's a, a very hard pecking order there. And typically at Leinster, this is something where I- Ireland has been quite fortunate also, that when a guy like Dan Levy comes through looking like a fucking superstar, um, honestly pushed ireland to that grand slam in 2018 he then gets injured and who comes up to replace him who's behind him in the pecking chart at leinster in that seven jersey as they used it josh vanderfleer turns out he's excellent as well but he did not wither on the vine while that was happening right like it was just not a fortunate injury but Levy's injury was at the perfect time for van der Fleer to come in and push on. For me, I think that there are, and I think there's a kind of a set time, there's a set level where as a, as, as a young player, you develop and you need minutes to develop, but then you need to step up to the next level. You need to, need to step up to the next level of development from there. There's always a few outliers, but I think if you're not playing Champions Cup level rugby at, at least at 24, 25, playing in big games and playing in knockout games for your, for your province. Um, I think at that stage, if you're not part of the knockout crew, you've got to be looking for a move elsewhere because you can't really know all that much about yourself from Uh, just playing URC level games and even Interpros because Interpros can be up or down with regards to the level of different teams you're playing. Like as in over the last few years, like Munster have not been very good in those Interpros against Leinster. You're not getting very hard games from a Leinster perspective. They're winning all these games with varying levels of ease. Like that sort of, of like, I would not look at any of those Leinster players from those Monster Interpros over the last number of years and go yeah that guy's showing he should be playing test level rugby I wouldn't get that read from any of those guys because very few of the monster guys are so I'm not sure if beating those guys says anything more about you than what it does about them if that makes sense so like that's the worry in that like everybody knows what Ireland's pack is at the moment and everybody knows what Leinster's pack is at the moment and barring injury Like, Leinster have a big game coming up this weekend. Now, there could be guys out injured, right? Or they could not, they they might not be fit for a full 80 minutes or for 60 minutes, so they may be rotated to the bench. They're the moments when you, opportunities for guys will pop in. But the minute that player who plays for Ireland and also for Leinster is fit, they will be out of the team or they might go onto the bench if there's somebody else injured. But like, it, it depends entirely on injury. There's not a whole load of upward mobility without it. Now you could look at Munster and say the same thing, but Gavin Coons was put through fairly quickly, um, regardless of regardless, regardless of, of CJ Sanders injury status or whatever. Um, so like, there's not a whole lot of upward mobility there at the moment, but at the same time, if you were to dilute the talent pool at Leinster I'm not sure that Irish rugby would be better for it because look I I enjoy shit housing with the idea of oh well look split Leinster in two if the conveyor belt is so good but like at the same time that dilute like the 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 concentration of talent that's there is very important to Irish rugby and at the same time I'm not sure if it makes a ton of sense for uh, any Irish province to look at um bringing in a ton of Leinster guys, like I'm looking at a Connacht and I'm thinking, look, they've been going well over the last couple of weeks for sure. But look, if if you're bringing in a ton of Leinster guys, at what point does that stop being Connacht? You know, like for me, there has to be a connection there to where you're playing from or otherwise, like when the going gets tough and when it gets hard, you go missing because that's not your place. That you're playing for, which could look be outdated thinking. For Munster, by the way, I think that the best mix is mostly Munster, Munster produced. Uh, a couple of guys then will say maybe if it's 70% Munster produced, I would then go with 20% Irish qualified, be they from Leinster, be they from Connacht, be there from Ulster, be they Irish qualified from abroad, and then the final 10% non-Irish qualified guys from outside. Leinsters will always be higher, like Leinsters will usually be 90% Leinster produced, maybe 5% Irish qualified and then 5% non-Irish qualified. Um, but for me, that's what would make it successful for Munster. I think if you start to go, if you're Connacht and you're looking at, if sixty-seven, you know, 50% of the team even is from Leinster. for a, Like that then would make me a little bit uneasy. Because again, you're talking about like responsibility to the fans and you're talking about responsibility to the, to the province. And I suppose like you have to identify for, I look. I mean, for other countries, it's maybe not that important, you know? And I suppose if Connacht are kind of making themselves look like, you know, be a club rather than a provincial team, you know, I know they're all clubs anyway, but you know, where anybody can come in and play and it's not a big deal. I suppose if they're successful, it doesn't matter, but like. I still think that getting a ton of guys from Leinster just because they're not playing um, a ton of top level rugby from from at Leinster is, I won't say dangerous, but I'm not sure if it's the best route for any provincial coach to go down. And I think that, you know, for Irish rugby at the moment, everything seems to be fine. But the only risk would be is that, like, there is a bit of stagnation in the team at the moment. And like, I won't say stagnation because things are going well, but the possibility for stagnation is there because we've seen it before. That when something works, we stick with it, and we don't temp- we, we, we don't tamper with it. That's even been true over the last two or three years. And with that comes a lot of attrition. With that comes like we're playing a lot of high-level rugby. That's you know, and it's physically very demanding. That's a uh, a big, I suppose, worry. I suppose going forward that. The guys who are now 23, 24 aren't getting those high level minutes so that if they're required to get those high level minutes in a year or or two years, they are not sufficiently kicked on enough to replace the guy like for like that they're stepping in for, if that makes sense. Uh, So there's risks and everything associated with it. So I hope that is okay. And I answer those questions somewhat all right, without too much rambling. Um... And you've also asked Morgan here as well. When does a pass behind the screen become obstruction? You could argue that it's already obstruction. Um, that when you are running a line as an option and when you uh, are not getting the pass, but you continue running into the defense, that you are blocking the defenders. Um, honestly, I think that the way forward for rugby is to completely legalize obstruction. Where as long as your feet are planted, like in basketball, that you can stand wherever you want. You can block whoever you want, as long as your feet are planted and you are not moving. That would open up a whole ton of new attacking uh, options. It would mean that we're reducing collisions in that there's not as many tackles because tackles don't happen as much. And um, I I think you're creating a type of rugby that's different, um, attractive. I suppose it depends on what you're what your concept of what attractive rugby is and um like from there i suppose that's the like it is obstruction you know but i for me i think obstruction should be legalized because i think that it it opens up a whole new area of the game it reduces the the threat of line speed you can still play rugby as normal but it allows for more creativity i feel (laughs) maybe i'm wrong i you. i usually am wrong uh, Freddie Pook, Fan Club says, Tom, I grew up with the Ronan O'Gara Humphreys era where the 10 took control and was the pivot. The Carberry conundrum for me, therefore really gets to me. Is it purely down to a lack of confidence for the lad? He's great in patches, then jumps out of tackles. How is that lack of consistency allowed to fester? If we're looking to improve the team and keep standards high, then how do we keep picking him? Thanks for the question. Look, I think Joy Carberry is a very interesting uh question as a player as a concept um he made a very i would say kind of ballsy decision to leave leinster because he wanted to play 10 and that like we've seen even now like he moved in what 2018 2019 that like all these years later johnny sexton is still the 10 um that he made the right decision first of all but like we can't separate the Carberry we see today from the injuries that Joy Carberry has suffered. Um, he lost 18 months of the game at a time when the game was changing fundamentally. And at, and at the same time he was playing in a Munster squad where we've seen since that the attack coaching was not at the level that it needed to be and we can see that by results. And like, because again, you can look at stuff like this, like my judgment is always at the end of the project, what happened? What did you do at the end of the project? So we can look at the whole thing uh, in situ. We saw that Munster came close, but ultimately didn't have a game that could break down the big teams. I mean, look at Joy Carberry's part in those games last year, um, where he was ranging from middling to good or to bad in some cases that what we see with Joey Carberry at the moment for me is he's not imposing himself on the game. Like, defensively, he can make a tackle. Like, he, he never shirks tackles, really. Like you say, jumping out of the tackle there. I've never really seen him jumping out of tackles. Like, I've seen him lose collisions. Like, rarely. You might see him the odd time, but that's not something I think it's a characteristic of his game. For me, The accuracy in his game hasn't really developed at the level that it needs to and that it needed to for him to be the guy we kind of hoped he would be at this stage. Injuries, we don't know what they've taken from him. Maybe they've taken a little bit of his pace, a little bit of his agility. Um, Who knows, like a little bit of that explosive step he had off his left or anything. Yeah, off his left. Maybe that's not there anymore and that's a difficult thing to, to recover from. At the moment, it feels that there's no, nothing really rock solid in his game that he can go back to, even when he's not playing well. Like we know with Sexton that when he's not playing well or great, whatever, when he's not having a good game, he can still go back to key fundamentals in his game. I think when Joey isn't playing well, there's nothing really that he can go back to, to rely on 100%. Like the system that we're playing at the moment requires a lot of on-ball activity for your 10, your playmakers. Not a whole load of kicking that isn't like kicking for a direct purpose rather than we'll say counter-transition kicking. And I think that like that in itself means that, because and you, if you speak to any 10 in a game, they accumulate moments and they accumulate confidence throughout the game. So they hit a nice pass, hits the guy perfectly, they crash it, they get a good read over on the other side, they get the pass, they take it, they sling it back to another player. Like they make some big plays, and they start building their confidence brick by brick by brick in an individual game. And then when you make a mistake, you kind of go back to your kind of your general level of well. You lose. Maybe you have a bad decision. Maybe you make a, a mistake. You fumble the ball. Maybe you kick out in the full or you miss a, ki- a penalty. Kick off the ground, like that kind of thing. Then it reduces your confidence back. But I think with Joy, the level that he can drop to, there's no baseline. Like I've seen him playing games for monster over the last couple of years, where it looks like he wants the ground to swallow him up. And like on Saturday, like against Glasgow, like he 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 had some decent moments where he looked a little sharp here, made a nice little pass there. But like it just felt that when things really started to go against him, it just felt that he shrank with Munster as we were kind of really struggling when we needed him to to push us on and start making a big, to make a big play and to land it. And like, this is where it starts to get unfair because then you're going into the whole thing of like a good decision is when you break from a, a rock as a scrum half and score a try. A bad decision is when you break from a, a rock and you don't score a try. So it's entirely outcome based. But I think that like you look at certain aspects of his pass action for example I felt haven't been great over the last year or two where it's looked a little laboured the passes have looked a little wobbly like he doesn't seem to be playing with a lot of conviction now I spoke to a guy there at the weekend who was saying that maybe he's not all that confident in the guys he's running with and I think that elements of lacking a settled like 9, 10 12, 13, 11 um structure around Carberry hasn't helped like there's been different personnel in and out over the last couple of years when he has been playing so like even then like you had the perfect inside centre for Joey Carberry um, in Damon De Lende, I feel but it actually we, we weren't able to use him properly because our system at the time was more of a boiler than what it needed to be to get the best out of both those guys but you have to look at it then and go. Well, what is Joy Carberry capable of in 2023? I think that in a system where he is a facilitator, where he is a guy who um, doesn't necessarily have to be the primary focus, uh, you look at um, Toulouse when they had Zach Holmes playing at ten with Ontemac at twelve. Now look, they were able to play that day like a colossal pack. I'm not sure if that's possible, but Munster, but like. Zach Holmes facilitated Antemak to make plays. Um, we haven't really done that when Jack Crowley's been at 12. Um, we've kind of done it with Malik, with uh, Antoine Friche when he's been at outside centre, but it becomes that bit more complicated than off the back of it. Um, why we stick with him is that he's a senior player and he's experienced at an international level. And he's a, a, a guy who leads during the week. Um, you've, if you've seen Access Munster, you've seen him Call and they'd say, look, we'll talk to our leaders now and he's making a little speech about John Klain's 58 cap or whatever else. Um, but, like, you're, you are you kind of have to go with the guy who you've been working with during the season. Like, I know Mike Prendergast last year was talking with uh, Joey Carberry before he came just to sort of get up to speed on what they were kind of looking to do and what, we, what they wanted to do. The system, I feel, is perfectly suited to Joey Carberry. But he has yet to produce, I would say, the standout, Performance where you're going that's the guy and there's been so many performances where he's looked like he's not the guy the pivots and the guy taking control look there are who, who do that but that doesn't seem to be Joey's game at the moment where he is sort of like an all-court threat when he's at his best but when he, you know, when he when he's at his best that's when the questions arise um, so yeah I hope that answers your question this is from Keelan um, I'll actually piggyback on that question and ask how much of a team style dictates the influence their halfbacks can have. For example, I'm conscious of a lot of people wanting to the 10 to take control of the game. A scenario would be pinned in your own 22 and expecting the ball to go back to the 10 with a rod style clearing kick, which then causes discontent if the scrum halves take on that responsibility. Is this a coaching led decision to kick off nine more? Is it a choice to try to reduce the number of passes before a kick? How much of what Munster do is down to a choice to play off nine or off 10 versus individual player decisions in the moment? Uh, This is my first mailback question so I'd like the whole podcast uh, dedicated to it. Thanks. Um, Well, look, you'll get around 15 minutes which is pretty good I think. Uh, When it comes to exits over the last number of years and I would say uh, since post 2009 ELVs uh, there's been more of a tactical onus on the scrum half to make the exits. Reason being is that Prior to the ELVs where you could just kick the ball out, wherever you kicked the ball out, if you kicked it from your, if you pass the ball back into your 22, you could kick it out anywhere as long as you were in your 22 uh, and the ball would stay where you kicked it. That's changed. So now um, there is, the line of the 22 is a hard wall. It's more often or more likely that if you're after a restart, right, that you'll take the ball down, you'll be inside your 22. To pass all the way back to your 10, there reduce it like it increases the pressure that the opposition could put in you, and it also makes it a more difficult kick for your 10 to make more distance. So basically, you might pass the ball 10 meters back in the hope that he can kick the ball 40 meters up the field, but you're still making 30 meters because you have to pass the ball 10 meters back to get the ball to him. Um, so what most teams do is they have their scrum half exit and look to go into a contestable set like that. That often is, um, schemed by the, like by the coach, by the team. Like they will work on, well, look, when we get this ball into the 22, we will maybe have one or two passes to see if it's on your 10 will communicate what they want at that moment. But the primary thing at the whole time was that like your 10 has to cancel the restart. Like, or cancel the exit, right? Like the 10 has to give a call. It's on, let's go. But most of the time, your, your, your 9 will work the position to exit. So they'll get onto the side where they have, um, like if it's kicked to the right or whatever else, you'll have the, the restart taken, ideally. Uh, you might maul for a second, but you'll try to stay in the 22 so you can exit directly if you wish. Um, if you're staying and kicking in field. Uh, your scrum half is generally better to do that then as well but like when it comes to control in the modern game like i suppose it does depend on what your primary action is as as a team like do you play mostly off nine like ulster do for example play an awful lot off nine uh leinster also play an awful lot off nine but they are dominated by 10 so like a lot of the, the 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 platform that those teams get Like Ulster are nine dominated and playoff nine. Leinster are 10 dominated, but playoff nine. So what that means is, is that you're going to be moving across the field while your 10 organizes different shapes and structures. And you'll see this with Leinster as well, that they will then, they will go through one, two, three tight phases and then launch and go into something a little bit wider. It's a key principle of Dublin ball. But when you look at Ulster, for example, they are a lot more prosaic with it. They will go off nine, off nine, off nine, and they'll roll across the field off nine and then maybe hit 10 who'll hit McCluskey and then he'll hit and then you're, you're looking to try and build and kind of eat up ground that way it's a it, look it's a way of playing and it's something that I think that when it works it's incredibly effective because this is something I think with the Leinster game at the weekend actually it's quite difficult for, um, for Leinster they'll have to if Ulster have a lot of possession they'll have to start poaching because Ulster can just hang on to the ball And that's going to be an interesting part of that. But like it's, it comes down to the style of play. So like from Munster, like our 10 has a lot of involvements. Uh, We play a flat 3-3-X system, which on transition is a 3-2-X system. You need your 10, your primary playmaker to be making good passing reads there. Like a 3-3-1, it exposes the pass quality of your 10 fairly quickly quickly you've got to be accurate in that system because everything is that little bit flatter so like part of the reason about how like when Carberry isn't playing well it feels like his passes aren't what they need to be because you're talking about time and space all reduced the minute the ball leaves the ruck right so when you get the pass and this is why I think that Patterson and Carberry might not work really well together as a pair Patterson is really quick but his pass quality isn't great It can be fluctuated up and down. If Carberry takes those passes, he has to readjust them because he's not the biggest fly half. He doesn't have pretty big hands. Big hands are important because you need to get your control of the ball. You need to get your grip on so you can start moving that ball beyond. That's when his pass quality can come down again. So if you're running a flat 3-3-1 where there's three players running off your 10, your 10 realistically has to be able to hit Every single one of those guys in the pod, plus the screen option. I think Carberry, depending on the side, doesn't really have that in his game. Where it, it like the pass needs to be perfect for him. His reshape needs to be perfect. But I've seen his pass off his right side can or his left side rather can look very very wobbly. Um, but like when it comes to style, it all comes down to what your what you're running. You know, like if you're playing a heavy kick pressure game. I can't think of a scrum half worse than that than Joy Carberry, who'd be at, who'd who'd be more ill suited to that type of game. If you were playing kick pressure, for example, and you would say, "Well, Roman Antimac does it for for uh, for France," he's a more athletic, durable guy himself, and is better on transition than Carberry is. Like pure kick transition would be what the Springboks do. And André Pollard is perfect for that. He is durable, he is big, he is physical, he's got a big boot in him, and that plays a large part in what the Springboks, when they do well, André Pollard is playing a large part in it. Uh, I think that the likes of Ben Healy, for example, would be a really good kick pressure 10. Um, But like, at the same time, if you asked Johnny Sexton, for example, to go into, you know, to go into Munster's 3-3-X system at the moment, he'd look off the pace he'd look like he'd look we would look washed up and it's not just because Munster are playing fast like th- th- that whole thing about training fast and playing fast like that that is true but it's the system that exposes the 10 because it changes what you're expected to do like Sexton for the most part with the guys he has available to them and, and the system that Ireland and Leinster run like he can pick his spots like he's running around he's organizing things as they're going and he's making passes not really under pressure but he's passing to an area that there's space and that's manoeuvred around by him and it, it comes down to a lot of his qualities also but the style makes the nine and ten so like that what monster do at the moment is like it, like they will have schemed decisions that they will have that when we're here we do this when we're in this area of the field we do that and you can always players can always make a decision to go and say, well, fuck it, look, there's space here, give me the ball, I'm going to go after it. And you live or die in that decision, you know, like if it's a good decision, a bad decision, whatever else, the outcome will tell you, you know, and that's unfortunately the way that it is for the most part. Like, you can see things that are a good option that maybe weren't executed well. That means that they were a good decision, just that the execution wasn't there. But then there are bad decisions that are executed badly, which always look really horrible. So, yeah, I hope that answered your question, uh, Keelan. Uh, Liquid Solid says would you prefer adopting the French system for try bonus points as in three more tries in the opposition plus win the game versus the current system I would I would because at the moment and I think we've seen this in um, in, in in some games involving Leinster but we even saw it at the, at the weekend um, against Glasgow where they had the game won at halftime more or less but like Monsters comeback would have taken that bonus point away from them so it would have kept the the game very very active Um and i think that that's something i think that they could look at going forward where it prevents teams coasting and you know you know that one's where they coast to the end and it's just like it, it, it's it, for me it kind of takes away from the the spectacle of the game and i think there, if there's always something to fight for right up in the last minute i think that in itself is a better option to go with nine times out of ten Um, Macker says, uh, any word on uh, Steveni Lombard with Buccaneers? Is he somebody who could be offered a Chris Moore style deal by Munster or is he miles off it? Uh, I've actually been watching this guy in uh, 1B quite a bit this year with Buccaneers. Big physical player. He's a Hawaiian guy from the same high school as Roman Salanoa. Um, he's again, just looks, it reminds me a little bit of, um, Tukiajo uh, with the All Blacks. He's big, he's physical, his line-out looks pretty sharp. Again, this is at 1B level, but yeah, he looks like a massive physical player. And I think it's in, it's inevitable he's going to get a shot somewhere. I mean, why not Munster? Um, so yeah, that's uh, the questions. Thank you very much for sending in those questions. Thank you very much for being a TRK subscriber. If you have any questions you'd like to send in uh, next week for next week's TRK Mailbag now that I'm back settled do so. Info at 3 or go to the TRK Mailbag section uh, in the uh, Secret Club and leave me a question there. Thank you very much for your uh, time. Thank you for being a subscriber. I'll talk to you again very, very soon.